It's 10am, you've walked into your patient's house, and there's a strong odour of urine singeing your nostrils. They're confused, they're a little warm to the touch. No further questions needed, you say. They've got a UTI. Right? Urinary tract infections are an extremely common presentation to both primary and secondary care services. The term UTI encompasses a wide range of clinical conditions as a result of microbial pathogens in the urinary tract and is often the go-to diagnosis in the elderly when they present with confusion or other non-specific symptoms. There's a real risk of all diagnostic thoughts stopping when we land on UTI and in our experience we in the ambulance service can be all too quick to jump on UTI as the presenting complaint, sometimes without fully exploring the other differentials that may be present. That's why this month we're looking at urinary tract infections. It should be a piece of piss. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. So hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name is Josh, I'm a specialist paramedic in critical care. My name is Simon, I'm an advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine. Um, my name's George. I'm a trainee advanced clinical practitioner in primary care. And it's uh, very nice to have you back, George, for this topic, which I'm sure you see more than your fair share of in your day job. So this week, we're going to be talking about UTIs, urinary tract infections. And uh, the reason that we decided to speak about this and the reason that we wanted to speak about this is because it's particularly pertinent, I think, for for paramedic practice where we see quite a lot of UTIs and we see quite a lot of patients who we are told probably has a UTI. Uh, it's quite classic. I certainly remember many, many a shift going to nursing homes where they've had a positive urine dip uh, and being told before I've even been told the patient's name, being told that they've got a UTI. So it's definitely something that people will be familiar with and is a differential that people will be considering quite a lot. And, and we really felt it was worth exploring and giving the time to an entire episode because there's really quite a lot to unpack and really quite a lot to dig down into. Now, they are definitely UTIs now, not anywhere near my... Uh, sphere of speciality so I'm going to be leaving it up to you guys mostly to uh, educate me and, and teach me a few more things about UTIs so let's get started. So Simon I'm going to pass it over to you do you want to uh, give us a bit of an introduction and discuss some epidemiology and pathophysiology of UTIs for us? Yeah so urinary tract infections or UTIs they are really common, as you quite rightly said, in both primary and secondary care services. So we see them in ED all the time. And I'm sure George will tell me that I'm sure it's a really common presentation in primary care. And since paramedic practice overlaps both of those areas, then uh, it's something the paramedic is going to see all the time. So the term UTI encompasses quite a wide range of clinical conditions, um, but they all result from microbial pathogens within the urinary tract. This can be either the upper tract, which is the kidneys and ureters, or the lower tract, which is the bladder and urethra. When they involve the upper area, we commonly know this as pyelonephritis, which is basically infection of the renal pelvis and upper ureters, and then we refer it to cystitis when it's just infection of the bladder. The only other type we need to consider in men is prostatitis, which is a little bit of a distinct entity but is associated with UTI, and that's um, inflammation of the prostate in, in males. And how common is it? Have you got the breakdowns of each individual condition or, or do we know how common it is? 
So it's a really common presentation. It's more common in women. So around one in three women have had a UTI by the age of 24. And around half of all women report at least one UTI in their lifetime. Uh, it's less frequently seen in men, but it does occur and it increases in prevalence with age. And the reason females are more prone to UTIs than, than men is because of the variation in anatomy of the urological system. So they have shorter length of urethras in females compared to males allowing for easier ascending movement of pathogens up into the bladder. The other reason is the relative closer proximity of the vaginal area to the rectal area, which is much closer in females than in men. So urinary tract infections, as Simon alluded to, are caused by inflammation of the urinary epithelium. And the most common cause of this is gut flora, such as E. coli. In general, uncomplicated lower UTIs involve the lower system of the urethra and bladder. If the inflammation moves upwards into the ureter and kidney, then this becomes a higher UTI or the acute pyelophronitis and is normally associated with patients who are more clinically unwell and will often see more significant and systemic symptoms. This inflammatory response of the ureter triggers stretch receptors in the bladder and this results in a sensation of bladder fullness and the need to urinate. This irritation also causes pain, resulting in the common UTI symptoms such as suprapubic tenderness, dysuria, frequency and urgency. This inflammation can also lead to hematuria. However, this is much more common in a microscopic level and is often detected on urine dipsticks as opposed to be seen visually. If the infection ascends further up the urinary system, which results in this acute pyelophronitis, then symptoms we're likely to see include fever and flank pain without the aforementioned symptoms of a lower UTI. Pathogens can then invade the bloodstream, and this often results in sepsis. Let's start talking about assessments. So let's start with history taking. Simon, where are you going to start your history take? What sort of questions are we going to ask, and what sort of responses uh, might we be looking for? Obviously, um, depending on the patient situation, if we walk in and the patient looks unwell, we're obviously, as normal, going to do our A to E assessment rapidly and then gain history at the same time. But if our patient looks well, we probably want to start with a, a history take. So the first thing I'd want to ask is a nice open question about what we've been called for. Um, just then let the patient explain in their own words. And hopefully they'll start to give you some of the uh, the information you need around the symptoms that they're suffering with and then we can focus that down a little bit more by using something like Socrates. So for those who aren't aware Socrates is a mnemonic we use when we are trying to focus on the physical effects of pain so when we're assessing a patient for pain so Socrates is sight where is the pain where is the pain worse O is onset when did the pain start was it sudden gradual is it getting better is it getting worse C is character what is the pain like? Try and be open here. Try not to feed the patient too many uh, descriptive words. Try and let them describe it to you. But the pain could be aching, stabbing, cramping. Does the pain radiate? Associations. Are there any other signs or symptoms associated with the pain? Uh, time. Does this pain follow any patterns? Is it worse at night? Is it worse in, in the day? Is it worse on movement? Exacerbating or relieving factors. Can they do anything that changes the pain? Can they sit in a more comfortable position? Can they stretch out? And finally, severity. How bad is the pain? Um, ideally, we'd be looking at a pain score from 0 to 10. Once we've worked through the mnemonic, we should have a good idea of where the pain is. That should then allow us to focus our assessments and history taking a little bit further. 
So we could go on then to ask about flank pain. Do they have any pain in their lower back? Do they feel systemically unwell? Do they feel generally unwell? Do they feel hot or feverish? Do they feel sick? Have they been cold and having rigors? Are they confused? You might be able to ask a relative or a carer in this situation. Has the patient been more confused over the last few days? Obviously, as as we mentioned at the top, we would be looking at any of the obvious signs of um, sepsis. And I think you've made a really good point there, George, that actually some of these older patients may just present with confusion and they may not actually have pain. So we may need to look for other symptoms that might indicate us towards a urine infection. We obviously touched on the really obvious symptoms, but I think it's really important for us to explore the more subtle symptoms that might not be so obvious on that first assessment. So that's quite an interesting point to to explore and we've discussed doing confusion in the elderly as a entirely separate podcast because there's quite a lot of differentials to to consider and work through and we'll touch on some of them now but is confusion in itself a red flag in the context of UTI when would you guys be concerned about confusion and then when might you be less concerned about it I think we need to be careful of not jumping to conclusions that confusion in the elderly is caused by urine infection. It's really easy to just uh, go into a patient, and I've seen this all the time, get an an elderly person who's slightly confused, um, maybe has a strong sense or strong smell of urine, uh, and then have had a label of UTI slapped onto them inappropriately, and we've missed other things like a pneumonia or we've missed a subdural bleed uh, we've missed an electrolyte imbalance there's you know there's lots of other reasons for confusion in the elderly and, and we just need to be careful uti can cause confusion but we, we need to make sure that that is actually the right diagnosis so there's actually another mnemonic and i, I love a mnemonic it seems to that's how i get through my uh, daily practice but we can use the mnemonic pinch me so it, this will be in our article Often these things are better to look at than necessarily listen to, but we'll run through it. So these are other differentials for confusion in the elderly that need to be explored if that's the only symptom. So P is pain. I is other infection. You know, it's a bit of a stretch coming up with this, but so we need to be looking as Simon alluded to, the patient could have a pneumonia, they could have cellulitis. They could have a whole range of other infections that's causing them to be off and maybe might be a reason for some of the other systemic bindings. Do they have poor nutrition? Do they live on their own? Then maybe they're not eating well. Maybe their carers have been isolating because of COVID. C, constipation. This is something that I didn't really appreciate until I moved into primary care, how much this can affect people. Um, H is for hydration. Are they dehydrated? Do we need to be looking at other causes of this dehydration? M is for medication. What medication are they taking? Are they taking too much of a certain medication? And E is for environment change. Have they recently moved into a new care home? Have they had a new set of carers? Have they moved in with family? All of these things are need to be explored when confusion is the only symptom that your patient is presenting with. with. I think you've made a really valuable point, George, actually, about the new environment. And this is really important to consider that actually elderly people don't cope well and they can get a delirium from being in a new environment, which is why transport to hospital isn't always in a patient's best interest. If you can manage them in a familiar environment, it's often much better for them. Absolutely. 
And this is when you need to be looking at other treatment options that may be available to you other than just conveying the patient to the emergency department. So, and then we're just going to do a focused examination, mainly of the abdomen and obviously any other symptoms um, that we found in our history take that may allude to another diagnosis. And the only other thing we probably want to do is something called a Murphy's punch, which is where we percuss with a closed fist over the renal angle on the back on both sides, which is diagnostic of pyelonephritis. So just be careful with this. I remember when I was a student paramedic, I uh, thought I was gently tapping someone's back and I sent the patient nearly through the roof with pain. So if someone does have pyelonephritis, this can cause quite a lot of pain. So just, just be light with it. So just with a closed fist and your hand just on their back over the renal angle, you just tap gently. Uh, and if they get pain uh, on top of that, then that's relatively indicative of, of a pyelonephritis um, along with the history that we talked about previously. It, so if they've got flank pain, you should do it on the on the good side first. And just yes. from my anecdotal experience, um, generally, if they have got uh, pyelonephritis, then, then you just putting your hand on that side ready to, you know, to do the manoeuvre. Uh, often causes them a jolt of pain anyway so generally it's for me i it's a rule out i think the the pyelonephritis pyelonephritis that i've seen uh you know you you barely need to to touch them on that side to to get them jumping through the roof so um so yeah it is a very gentle maneuver and just to add on to that, I think George is right what he said earlier that actually most of this is history. You know, the examination accounts for very little. So I, I would say you're completely right. Actually, if someone tells you they've got really bad flank pain, febrile and vomiting, you, you probably don't even need to do that. It's it, The diagnosis is obvious from the history. Obviously, closing that with a full set of OBS just to make sure that we're not septic and we're not unwell. And of course, if it's non-specific symptoms like in the elderly like confusion malaise fever just generally unwell then we need to be doing a much wider examination a much wider screen for other conditions and adding in other examinations sort of respiratory neurological exam etc as as we need to like we would do on any patient to find the the cause of their symptoms we've obviously talked about the questions that we're going to ask and some of the things that we're going to inquire about what what some of the really classic answers what's a really classic history take that that would make us think uti i'm sure most people know it let's start off the discussion by by saying what's really classic what would make you think this patient's got a UTI? you know you've got a young patient that presents to you young female patient let's say mid 30s you've opened your history take with a nice open question and they're most they're probably going to reply to you fairly quickly that they've got pain or discomfort when they're passing urine now immediately to me in a young otherwise healthy patient if someone's telling me they've got pain when passing urine my first thought and Simon will probably be the same that this patient has a UTI now I'm going to lead into that a bit further and I'm going to I'm going to ask some other questions I'm going to ask you know are they going to the toilet more often they're probably going to reply with, yes, they are. As we mentioned, you've got the inflammation of the bladder, which causes the stretch response, which pushes them to go to the toilet more often. That then causes pain. So, if, you know, the most common presentation you're going to see in a simple cystitis, so a lower UTI, is someone that's presenting with an increased frequency and some discomfort when you pass, or when they're passing urine. And we see this all the time in primary care. 
And in reality, it's something that you can really diagnose purely on a history take rather than any physical assessment. I'd be interested, George, to know, um, because I see it quite a lot in ED, how many patients do you get that come in and go, I've got a UTI? Or I, I th- I've got cystitis again because I think actually that's from from looking into the evidence that's actually really diagnostic. If a patient has had UTIs in the past and comes in and says I've got another UTI, they're often quite right. Absolutely, and we have to like everything in medicine. We have to trust the patient. They know their bodies. They know their bodies best. If you've got someone presenting to you telling you that you've you know they've got a UTI, they've got a UTI. Yeah, I think we'll put some evidence to that in the uh, in the article. Uh, I can't remember where it was off the top of my head, but there's a good paper that actually says that uh, if someone's had cystitis and, and UTIs before, they then come back with similar symptoms and tell you they've got a UTI. It's actually quite diagnostic. I think the caveat we need to add in there is what we alluded to at the start of going into a care home and they've done a urine dip and go, oh, Margaret's got a UTI. I think that's a different case, and I think we need to look at older patients uh, as a separate entity but yeah for these young patients um them reporting they think they've got a UTI again is is probably quite diagnostic and we probably need to consider at that point their their risk factors for it which is going to heighten our suspicion if we haven't already so we've already said females are more likely to have it we've said elderly people are more likely to have it doing a bit of reading and and most of the evidence out there is saying urethral catheters you're more likely to have a, a urinary tract infection does that complicate things a little bit more yeah, well, it, it changes the symptoms because you don't get dysuria and you don't get frequency when you've got a catheter in situ. So, yeah, it does make it a bit more harder. And obviously, our diagnostic tests of urine dip and MSU become less accurate anyway with a catheter specimen. So it's much harder to uh, diagnose. We, we tend to be looking for uh, much different symptoms like fever, suprapubic tenderness, confusion, especially in the elderly. When When you are presented with a patient that has a catheter in in situ you're really going to have to think away from the typical uti presentation and this is when the history take from not only the patient but the patient's relatives carers or friends is really important to try and explore all avenues before you rush to that straight diagnosis there's a really good flow chart to help people with decision making for this from uh, Public Health England and the UTI guidelines and catheterised adults and those over the age of 65. It's well worth taking a look at to uh, help guide your decision making if you think your patient might have a UTI or if you want to uh, rule out, you know, and consider other things that it might be. And and the the other uh sort of risk factor to, to bear in mind that i was reading up uh on was was patients that are at risk of neurogenic bladder so patients with dementia or patients with parkinsonism something like that um the the signals from the bladder to the brain telling it that it's full and telling you that you need to urinate uh, aren't as strong or aren't passed up properly so these these groups of patients tend to to hold on to their urine longer and they have associated complications with with infections with renal stones and things like that so that's another thing to to build into with a risk factor uh, workup for these patients that leads quite nicely on to another risk factor josh was saying about people holding on to their uh, urine Uh, We also see it a lot in the elderly, especially those with poor mobility. Um, Obviously, those with poor mobility generally find it a struggle to get to the toilet and they then don't want to move. So what they tend to do is drink less, which means they go to the toilet less, which means they get dehydrated, which increases their risk of UTIs. 
And the final risk factor that I that I found that's worth bearing in mind is is an increased risk in postmenopausal women. They've got an increased risk of UTI. So where they've got a, a drop in estrogen, that leads to an increase in vaginal pH. So part of the the menopausal process uh, has an increase in vaginal pH, um, and you have increased colonization of of vaginal bacteria, which which can result in a UTI. So that's another thing to to, to build in. We talked about elderly. Well, we've talked about women, but but women that we wouldn't quite describe as elderly that might be postmenopausal. That's something else to, to to bear in mind. They'll have an increased risk. So we've talked about our classic symptoms of urinary tract infections, which vary obviously between younger people and older people. We then want to screen for patients who might have more complicated UTIs. So as we mentioned earlier, pyelonephritis. So we're going to ask things around. Do they have flank pain? Have they got any systemic symptoms such as fever, nausea, vomiting, malaise, rigors, severe confusion, tachycardias, anything that's suggestive of of sepsis? Once we've screened for these more complex UTIs, then we need to start thinking about our differential diagnosis that might give similar symptoms. So in a young female patient, the thing I would think about first is gynecological infections. So we want to inquire about things like pelvic pain, vaginal discharge, bleeding, heavy or irregular or inappropriate bleeding. We want to ask about pain during intercourse. And then we need to inquire and take a sexual history to ask about new or multiple sexual partners or unsafe sexual practices and things that might put this person at increased risk for sexually transmitted infections. It's it's probably just worth mentioning on on the back of that, Simon, is... is, uh... You you spoke about mostly female patients in that, but don't don't forget to consider STI in in males. So the the symptoms will be somewhat similar, won't they? They'll be sort of pain around the penis, around the urethra. They might still have pain on on urination, dysuria, if they've got an STI. But but things like discharge from the penis or or significant amount of redness to the end of the penis is is not a normal presentation for a for a UTI or a cystitis. So we'd probably be considering. STI then. So Simon mentioned it earlier, prostatitis. He mentioned the symptoms are very similar to a UTI. However, we're quite likely to see some perineal, uh, penile or rectal pain, possibly retention in urine. So you might ask the patient whether they've got a reduced flow. Uh, They might have difficulty voiding. So the feeling that as soon as they've stopped urinating, that they need to go immediately again. They've got, they might have lower back pain, pain on ejaculation, or they might have tender or swollen prostates, although on a frontline ambulance, it's unlikely you're going to be able to assess that. But then also a lot of those symptoms I just mentioned in some males, you might be having a differential that goes between prostatitis as well as a sexual, uh, sexually transmitted disease. So history take is really important on this. I think that's a good point, George. And if you can't actually... Um do a digital rectal exam either because your service doesn't allow it or um, you're not not trained in it obviously some paramedics are and you can't perform that yourself it's probably worth if you're considering prostatitis as a diagnosis referring them the same day to a clinician who can do a digital rectal exam just to just to check that so i'm assuming that that prostatitis isn't something that is particularly increased risk in the elderly can young people get prostatitis just as as easily because we always think about the prostate, we think about sort of 50-year-old plus men, don't we? So is that is that still the case? Are young people or are young men likely to have a prostatitis? So yes, 
prostatitis is going to affect any age. Uh, it's the most co- common urinary tract problem for men younger the age of 50 and the third most common urinary tract problem for men older the age of 50. And I think it's really important that we differentiate prostatitis from a simple UTI because it is going to affect management. The antibiotic regime is going to be different and it's going to be a much longer course. Okay, that's really good to know. So if someone's got a really classic sounding UTI symptoms that that doesn't have problems passing urine, they're not not struggling to start the stream or struggling to void their bladder, then we'll we'll probably be okay thinking that's a cystitis. But if there's any question around that, if there's any question around whether or not they're having problems starting the stream, then we should probably send them to someone who can do a DRE. Whilst we're talking about the prostate, we should consider other scrotal pathologies, so things like testicular torsion or epididymoorchitis, which is infection of the epididymis and the testicles. In younger men, that's often sexually transmitted. So as you rightly said earlier, Josh, we need to think about those sorts of sexually transmitted infections. And then in older men, that tends to be from a urine source. So actually, someone could have a UTI first, and then that's descends downwards and causes an epididymoorchitis so it's important we think and consider that other differentials that you might see when patients mention flank or loin pain uh, is renal colic this hopefully will be quite distinctive they're going the renal colic patients are going to be in a significant amount of pain the pain is going to come on and off in waves usually they'll find they've got pain on one side of their flank rather than uh, bilaterally and when they're in the uh, throes of a a renal colic pain they're going to be unable to find any position that's comfortable we would tend to see patients with with renal colic in a lot more pain than you would expect to see a patient suffering with a uti and then in females consideration towards ovarian pathology so ovarian torsions or ruptured ovarian cysts We then want to think about other abdominal problems that are going to cause similar symptoms. So appendicitis to me is the big one. And this is one that uh, I think we would probably see quite a lot in secondary care and in primary care. We get generalised or classically get generalised umbilical abdominal pain that then migrates to the right iliac fossa after several hours. You get fever, anorexia, vomiting and McBurney's point tenderness. But always keep in mind that appendicitis can malpresent and they can sometimes present with rectal pain or with difficulty passing urine or increased urinary frequency or with diarrhea. So we have to be really careful about missing an an acute appendicitis. Finally, we're going to be considering urological or gynecological cancers. Uh, So the symptoms we're looking for in, in this scenario would be unexplained weight loss, night sweats, Lower urinary tract symptoms, often we'd be concerned if the patient had had antibiotics and the urinary uh, tract symptoms had uh, persisted, even after a treatment with antibiotics. They're going to have worsening back abdominal or pelvic pain, and we might see visible but painless hematuria or vaginal bleeding, especially in older adults. So if we notice any of those, the patient themselves might say they've lost a significant amount of weight. We're either going to be referring to the GP or encouraging the patient to make contact with their GP for a two-week weight referral to to the hospital. 
That's the last of the main differentials when we're talking about similar symptoms. But as we mentioned earlier, the only final consideration to make is those in like the elderly, the confused uh, dementia patients who may present with non-specific symptoms where we have inappropriately diagnosed a UTI by urine dip, maybe in a nursing home or a care home and actually missing other things that can cause that confusion and that change in response level in the elderly. So I just think that although though those presentations are different, we, we need to keep them on our radar in those types of patients. And I think that brings us quite nicely on uh, to... No. Yeah, yeah, no, you're, you've got yourself there, Simon. You've managed to very rapidly wrangle in a discussion uh, about urine dipsticks so i'm gonna time you you have you can you've got five minutes uh, maximum that you can rant on about urine dips so uh say what you need to say now i'm not gonna make other people endure it in any future podcasts this is your time now to to really get everything out that you've got to say about urine dips so crack on so urine dip, my favorite topic and when we should and shouldn't use it. So urine dips, obviously, and I'm sure every paramedic has turned up to a nursing home and been told, oh, this patient has got, they suffer with UTIs regularly, they've got UTI, we've dipped their urine, it's positive for leukocytes. So we need to be really careful about using urine dips. There is considerable evidence out there that says when we should and shouldn't use urine dipstick testing. The first point I want to categorically say is that patients over the age of 65 or those with catheters should never, under any circumstances, when we're talking about urinary tract infections, have a urine dip. Would you agree with that, George? Absolutely. It's, yeah, 100%. You are massively at risk of misdiagnosing a patient. And the reason is because... Elderly patients and those with catheters are highly prone to asymptomatic bacteria. So asymptomatic bacteria is bacteria in the urine that is present and lights up a dipstick like a Christmas tree, but doesn't cause a urine infection. So that is not the cause of your patient's symptoms. So look harder, look elsewhere. We need to be really careful of that. And Public Health England and NICE all advocate that they are not used. So please don't use urine dips. If someone gives you a urine dipstick report for a 85-year-old in a care home with dementia, just ignore it and do your own assessment. The next thing we need to talk about is that urine dipsticks do not exclude a diagnosis of UTI. So even if you have a negative urine dip, ARCHEM and the Royal College of Emergency Medicine make it clear that you cannot exclude a UTI, especially in the presence of two or more symptoms of a UTI. So that basically summarises that you shouldn't use them to diagnose a UTI and you shouldn't use them to rule out a UTI. So George, when do you use urine dips in primary care? When can they be used properly? So essentially, the Royal College of General Practitioners like ARCHEM, CKS NICE, or pretty much everyone, as Simon said, over the age of 65, you don't use them. Under the age of 65, they can be used as a tool alongside a decent history take to aid a diagnosis of a urinary tract infection. So in reality, most simple cystitis cases, you will probably be able to diagnose purely on a history take. 
often what we do in primary care is we'll add in a urine sample to dip just to check for things like blood and we will use them after antibiotics to make sure that we're not seeing any bacteria in urine following a, a treatment of antibiotics. So symptoms might pass, as in you know the sensation of burning when passing urine. However, we might still be seeing things like blood in the urine, which we'd expect to clear following a course of antibiotics. So often we'll, we'll use them to see whether antibiotics have been successful. Yeah, I'd completely agree with that. And that's exactly what they're they're mainly for. So those younger patients where the diagnosis isn't necessarily immediately obvious, but any patient who's got multiple symptoms of a UTI, if they're frequency, urgency, dysuria, and none of the other symptoms of other conditions we talked about earlier, you don't actually need to use them. But yeah, you're quite right. They can be used to aid the diagnosis in, in, in patients with less symptoms. I'm, I strongly advise anyone we'll, we'll put it in the show notes and 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 the references just go and have a look at the public health england guidelines there's there's nice flow charts for different age patients males and females those with catheters that just guide you on the diagnosis of this and it just makes it really simple and really straightforward the other times then we should be using urine dip and i mentioned asymptomatic bacteria earlier and that, that doesn't cause problems in the elderly and we shouldn't be treating those the one time we probably do want to treat it is in pregnant patients so pregnant patients who present with asymptomatic bacteria, they probably should have a course of antibiotics as guided by NICE and anyone with a urinary tract infection in pregnancy should, should, should have a urine dip. And then finally, children, because young children, especially those that are pre-verbal or, or early on in, in talking, will present with different symptoms of a UTI and we don't want to miss that in children so they, they can be used then as a as a diagnostic tool to aid in the diagnosis of, of a urine infection in children. So those are the times it's it's safe to use. And obviously urine dips don't just have things for UTI on them. They've got other things like protein, like blood, which can be used for other conditions. So they can be used for other things quite well. We're literally talking about UTIs here. So I think that is my soapbox covered, Josh. Um, yeah, I am happy that I've I've got that off my chest, so uh, we can we can we can crack on. Excellent, yeah, good. That's that's your time up. I'll stop my stopwatch. Um, so uh, I'm still going to talk about urine testing, but not dipsticks this time. So talking about midstream urine samples. So George, what kind of patients need a midstream urine sample? Do you do that as standard over dipping, or is it particularly high risk patients that you do you, you do an MSU for? So generally, we we will send off a MSU for patients over the age of 65. Now, CKS NICE has a whole bunch of guidelines depending on whether you think it's a complicated UTI, so an upper UTI or a lower UTI, that will state when you give antibiotics and when you send off a midstream urine. So generally, what we will tend to do is send off a midstream urine and then they will prescribe on the basis of the results of the midstream urine. So what they'll be able to do with, with the urine test sent off to the lab is actually tests for bacterial resistance, which will allow them to treat with the most appropriate antibiotic rather than just giving the patient a generic first-line antibiotic and the pathogen be completely resistant to that. So effectively, you're not doing anything beneficial for the patient. So what we tend to do is wait for the results of the MSU on the majority of patients. Over the age of 65, or would you do it for pregnant patients and so, another... 
as you mentioned, essentially anyone over the age of 65, high-risk patients, men, because we need a slightly longer course of antibiotics, and pregnant ladies. Okay. So from our perspective as the paramedic that's attended them, uh, more than likely off the back of a one-on-one call or perhaps off a lines call, and we're there with this patient that we've identified we think uh, might have a cystitis who fits that category of risk that you've you've mentioned is there anything that we can do to help speed the process up so can we is it as simple as taking a a urine sample in a clean pot to the gp surgery uh if if it's a 70 year old who's at home who can't get out that often can we speed the process up by bringing you an msu so Quite often we will, if we've spoken to someone over the phone, we'll encourage them or a family member to drop urine to us that we will either just label and send straight off. So yes, absolutely. If you can encourage a family member to bring in a urine sample to us, if you've done the referral to the GP, then that, that, that's great. So let's then finish with safety netting. Uh, before we talk about some case studies and, and put what we've talked about into into context. So, George, what's what's some sort of safety netting that we would give to these patients? Let's say we're happy they've got a cystitis, we've, we've confirmed a lower urinary tract infection, and uh, we're going to leave them at home to, to go and get an MSU or, or, or to go and get antibiotics from uh, their own GP or out of hours. What, what's some ongoing care advice we can give to these patients? We want to be telling them to stay well hydrated, we want to be encouraging them to pass urine. We want to um, tell them not to hold their urine and when they need to go, they need to be headed to the toilet. Obviously, we need to be giving them the knowledge to know that the symptoms that they might start suffering with if their UTI ascends or becomes worse. Obviously, we need to be telling them about lower back pain, flank pain, and advise them to sort of recontact us if that if those symptoms start to develop and then obviously we need to encourage the patient to contact their own GP and reality we can you know we can trust the patient to do that themselves and and do all patients need to go and get antibiotics George if we're seeing them or can we tell some to just drink a lot of water and and cranberry juice is is the is the common one do, do they all need to be going to see their GP not all patients will require antibiotics in the treatment of a UTI CKS NICE, so the guidelines we really follow in primary care, are not explicit. They give two options. So you can either prescribe an immediate antibiotic or you can delay antibiotics by 48 hours. So if you delay the for- by 48 hours, you're waiting to see whether the symptoms improve. So by that, we would encourage fluid. We would not advise cranberry juice. There's no evidence to say that cranberry juice is beneficial. In fact, there is some small evidence that suggests actually the high sugar content in cranberry juice can make things worse, but it's not fantastic. But all the evidence we've got will be in the um, show notes on the website. So do you need to refer all patients to the GP? Depends on the severity, depends on how confident you are that the patient is going to be able to effectively self-manage over the next 48 hours if you believe and the patient states they've had one before and they're quite happy to sort of manage for the next 48 hours and if it's not better than they'll present to the gp then absolutely fine 
if you're not confident or you don't believe the patient necessarily has the the methods or the capacity to do so, then I think it's worth making contact with the GP on their behalf. So just to finish then, uh, I've got a couple of cases from patients that I've seen to put into perspective for people and uh, to test you guys. So you can ask me some questions and I'll give you the history as it was given to me. So the first patient that I've got for you is whilst I was working at a festival and uh, a 22-year-old male comes up to you who's uh, the drummer for one of the support bands that, that are performing at, at the festival and, and they've been on tour for, for quite a while. And they come up to the to the medical post and the first aider that's been working with you that checks them in says, uh, this guy has a painful penis and pain when he's urinating. It sounds like a UTI. Uh, have you got any antibiotics for him? So what sort of things would you like to ask our 22-year-old drummer? So I'd start by telling the first aider that it's unlikely to be a UTI and I'd also want to know uh, how many groupies were around. Okay. If that's, if that's an appropriate start to my So history. there's some big sort of red flags there that might deviate me away from it being a simple UTI. The fact he's actually got a painful penis is quite a big differential between a UTI and what ultimately was probably a sexually transmitted infection. Simon, I'd be very stereotypical that I'm sure that drummers of bands at festivals are clearly monogamous and practice <laughs> every opportunity. But, you know, that would certainly lead on to my next questions would be along the lines of sexual activity. Okay. Has he been wearing protection? Uh, and um, absolutely uh, against your initial thoughts, George, uh, this drummer says that he's not the most monogamous uh, of, of rock stars. And on tour, he has certainly been around and protection is not always needed is it if they're on the pill is what he says to you so uh no he's not always been the uh the, the best boy with wearing protection are there any other sort of questions about symptoms you might want to ask so i think we need to ask about um discharge inquire a bit more about the penile pain we need to ask about testicular pain as well. As I said earlier, you can get obviously spread to epididymo or chitis. So we probably want to do a bit of a testicular exam and ask some uh, about questions like that. You've hit the nail on the head. It's a young person, so that increases the risk of um, unsafe sexual practices, uh, like I said, without barrier contraception, which is common belief. Uh, we're going to ask about the dysuria and we're going to ask about soreness or irritations. So we're going to want to look at the end of the penis as well, see if there's any balanitis. And we're going to um, ask about sort of increased frequency. So, yeah, he's got quite a red top of his penis, quite a red glands. He says he's got some discomfort in his testicles. Yeah, uh, it's sort of a burning sensation all the way along his penis, worse when he pees and sort of goes down into his into his testicles. Uh, and he was a bit alarmed this morning that he woke up. He found some sort of pinky, pearlescent or pearlulent discharge uh, in his underwear when he woke up this morning. Yeah, so I think sort of everything there is probably leaning towards a sexually transmitted infection over a urinary tract infection. And, and that's what I thought, and um, I suggested that, that he went to a gum clinic rather than uh, than, than anyone else, and, and I figured they could probably do everything they needed to do their tests and, and sort out with some antibiotics. 
there. Yeah, I, I think it's really important as well because it's not just about him. The gum clinic will need to do contact tracing as well. So and and follow up. So there's um there's lots lots going on there. It's probably quite likely to be something like a chlamydial infection, and and that's the yeah the right treatment is to refer to general urinary medicine. I'd also advise on refraining from intercourse until you've completed treatment, and then in future using barrier contraception and educating around that as well. Cool. The next patient that you're called to is but working back on a truck this time. Uh, you're called to an 82 year old male who it's come through as a full non injury. And you, he's completely uninjured. Uh, it was just a care line pendant because he couldn't get off the floor. And uh, you, you get him up, uh, see him mobilised back to his chair, doing the full assessment as you would expect from our fall injuries podcast. That's episode one, available at generalbroadcast.org.uk. And when you're speaking to this chap, uh, he says the reason that he fell is he's got up in the night because he urgently, urgently needed to urinate. Uh, and he's just tripped over something whilst uh, trying to get to the bathroom. Uh, and he he noted that he was sort of in, incontinent uh, on the way to the bathroom because the urgency was, was that much. And he comments that he's had increasing urgency over the last sort of two to three weeks to, to urinate. He's got polyurea. He keeps going to the bathroom at all hours, seems to be worse at night. And he he thinks it's because of all the water that he's drinking because he just is so so thirsty. So uh, what's your thoughts? So um, I would hope that you've been on an ambulance, and uh, I'd like to know whether you did a blood sugar, <laughs> a random blood glucose. <laughs> uh, I did do a, a blood sugar. Yeah, all obs were normal, but um, but his blood sugar was twenty point one. Yeah, I thought it might be. So, yeah, so nocturnal uh, urination, thirst, polydipsia. Is he known diabetic? He's not. So, yeah, I think we're probably heading down this line. It sounds like there might be uh, potentially a new diagnosis of, of a type 2 diabetes there. So, obviously, yeah, we're going to do the, the normal screen. As you said, there's no, no other infection markers, so hopefully no fever. We're going to inquire around those symptoms. I don't know what George thinks, but this sounds to me like it's an undiagnosed diabetes and not a UTR. Yeah, absolutely. That sort of feeling of unquenchable thirst is is quite indicative of diabetes. It's often the first sign or symptom that people get if they've been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes early in life and it's something that we'll quite often see later in life with type 2 diabetics. So people will report that their mouth feels dry, but they're going to the toilet a huge amount. Uh, would be worth questioning on his weight. Has his weight been stable? Is, is his diet? Uh, he thinks he's lost weight in the yeah. last few weeks. So the, these are all things that are indicative of needing a blood test, so HbA1c, to look at long-term um, blood glucose levels. Oh, you're all far too so clever. This is this is where our opinions might differ as to. Uh, oh, actually, I probably won't go into that because it's going off on tangent. Then, yeah. anyway, about whether you'd send that to hospital or manage that in primary care. I I don't think I sent him to hospital. I think. Did you manage that in primary care, George? Um, obviously, he had no ketones and he wasn't confused. Yeah, I think as probably. long as that's probably where I would dip someone over the age of sixty-five. <laughs> but, 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 but for glucose. Yeah, for, for glucose. And for ketones, yeah. Um, but I think that might be a podcast f- for the future. Yes, that's a completely different topic. And my my one job is to keep you you guys on topic today. Okay, fine. And then uh, my final 
scenario is is a 35 year old lady who has had about a three day history of uh, pain on urination increased frequency suprapubic discomfort and had been managing quite well but her husband has called 111 today because uh, she's in bed she feels really really rotten and uh, she's had a fever all night and she's now got some new pain first off i'd want to be asking about this new pain so i think it's quite clear from the symptoms there that were you know on the face of it we'll probably be looking at a uti this new pain and the sudden worsening over the three day period after these three days i'd want to be exploring that so i'd be using my socrates mnemonic to sort of probe that pain, that new pain a little bit further and to see what the changes are there Okay, so she tells you that she's got the the sort of suprapubic pelvic discomfort for, that she's had for the last three days. And then overnight and today she's got some right-sided uh, pain in her side, which is now coming, coming in waves. There's a dull ache, but it's sort of coming in waves. And uh, she just says it's an excruciating pain. She's sort of clearly uncomfortable in the pe- in the bed and unable to get herself comfortable yeah so i think i would then be moving towards that sort of the uti has ascended and we're now looking at more of an acute pilofrenitis case over simple cystitis and depending on time of day what day of the week it is is probably going to be a close call between do you convey this patient to ed or do you contact ed and i'd be interested to hear simon's sort of opinion on this so i tend to um follow nice quite well with this polynephritis can be really difficult to manage in the community if a patient's systemically well they can try uh, a course of oral antibiotics we need to think carefully about the antibiotics because the stuff we give standard like nitrofurantoin for um lower UTI and aren't going to work on an upper UTI. So we want to be trying something different like um, ciprofloxacin. If they are unwell, if they're vomiting, tachycardic, septic, hypertensive, obviously, then definitely they're going to emit. Most likely what we're going to see is this middle ground patient. And then I think it is a case of just clinical judgment. Pyonephritis is quite can turn quite quickly into a, a nasty infection into sepsis so i think if the patient isn't quite well then airing on the side of caution and transport to hospital is probably the better option in ed we can always um work work them up we've got access to uh, renal ultrasound to check uh for complications we can also maybe just admit them overnight and give them 24 hours of iv antibiotics the other things you could try, depending on local service availability, is if a patient really doesn't want to come into hospital, is some community IVABs. So if you've got an ambulatory emergency, not all, not all do this, but a, a community ambulator emergency care service that does do home IV antibiotics. There's some really cool pumps nowadays where you can go in, they'll put like a cartridge in a pump. You go home, you have a 24 hours of antibiotics, you come back in the next morning, you get reassessed by um, the practitioners or the medical team, and then they swap your antibiotics out. You go home again, you come back, and it's just a way. It's like hospital at home, but people have regular reviews with stringent worsening advice, and they have IVs by these pumps. 
So there's, there are other options to consider. It's not just a straight, oh, let's go to A&E. But I think if, if there's any doubt about how unwell the patient is, then, then A&E is a perfectly fine option. That being said, well pyelonephritis or those with just a little bit of flank pain but not vomiting and not systemically unwell, apart from maybe a mild fever, probably could have a course of oral antibiotics but must have stringent follow-up from primary care to make sure they are improving with really really strict worsening advice around the sepsis markers and sepsis symptoms that they must call back or, or present to hospital if they deteriorate I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, so I was just looking at our um, antibiotic guidelines. If we were treating them at home with antibiotics, we would treat them for 24 hours. If we saw no improvement after 24 hours, we would be admitting them to hospital. That's pretty much what I thought. It it sounded like a a polynephritis. Um, She she was quite pyrexic. She was marginally tachycardic, sort of sitting around the, the 100 mark. But blood pressure was well maintained and uh, mentation was good and, and she still had urine output, uh, although it was reduced, I think, because she had deliberately stopped drinking water uh, to, to try and stop going to the, to, to the loo as much. So we, we had a long chat and uh, it was the early hours of the morning. So I just referred her to a GP on opening, which would have been four or five hours. Uh, I don't know whether or not she ended up going into hospital or not. I think that's a really good plan, actually, Josh. And I think that's one thing that we can really take away from this, it, that it's we don't always have to do everything immediately. It is fine to do a delayed approach to, to watch and wait and to have these management plans where we get people reviewed slightly later on and we see how they're going. And if they get worse, then we can escalate that plan. If we if they get better, then we can just carry on with it. And I think it's something that paramedics don't always necessarily feel comfortable with. I, I never did when I was a paramedic, but it's something on my specialist paramedic course that I learnt really early on and how valuable it can be. So I think it's a really good tool. Get get comfortable with managing a certain degree of risk, but don't manage it alone. You can talk to other people, talk to your seniors, talk to the patient. It's really good to get the patient on board. You can offer them different options. You can say, look, you are sort of unwell with this you know i think you've got a kidney infection your kidney infection can get worse they can deteriorate they can do this but you know with some antibiotics you might get better we can send you to hospital we can manage you in the community i feel at the moment that we could do whatever you feel or we should do this what do you think about that and then get their opinion make a plan together and then document that conversation and explore all that and and i think that's a really sensible approach just managing it together, shared decision-making. And, and I think also just bearing in mind that, that you can take some time to try and get the patient better before you uh, before you come up with a plan for them. So we pushed a, an oral fluid challenge whilst we were doing our paperwork and, and doing the assessment. So I think she had probably about 700 mils of, of water over the time that I was there uh, and started urinating again uh, and told her to keep that up. We had some paracetamol, we got some oromorph on board, which really improved her her pain and discomfort. So I think, yeah, that we don't always have to make a, a, a click your fingers decision based on what you see within the first 10 minutes of getting there. Part of our job is to try and make people better. And uh, if you can... If you can do some decent therapy and get them to a better position than what you find them and then make your decision, that's um, that's also really important. 
You're talking about delaying unseen, Josh, and uh, trying to do some treatment. It's a good job Alex, our ambulance manager, isn't in this podcast. Yeah, no, so I uh, I, I, de- I, had the worst unseen time in, in the county I used to work in. Uh, and I think, George, you might have had the second worst unseen time. <laughs> so, uh, but you, you know what? If, if it's taking 40 minutes extra uh, on scene with the patient versus taking them to hospitals to sit outside for an hour and a half, the, the maths make sense to me. I, I, I agree with you. I think with ambulance waits at the moment, actually, you know, on scene times are probably not the not the main. If you sit there for for two hours and then, then convey the patient, that's an issue. But if you're going to properly keep them at home, probably really sensible. And it's about patient care, isn't it? It's about doing what's right for the patient. And, you know, well, and that's the main priority for all of us. So I, I really don't want to go off on a tangent because that was, again, my one job to stop tangents this episode. But you, you said about waiting on scene for a while and then deciding to convey. I think we just need to be careful there because it's absolutely acceptable to have a go at making them better and have a go at making the uh, starting the plan to stay on scene. And if that doesn't go to plan and you, and you change your mind and you think actually now hospital is is obviously the right decision, that's that's absolutely fine. Ideally, don't be doing you know taking two hours to reach that conclusion every single time. But but there definitely are cases where after a long period of time on scene with the patient, you you go, okay, may, maybe we need to go to hospital now. And we need to be very aware of the cognitive bias of time buy-in of, well, I've spent an hour and a half here on, on with this patient. I now can't take them to hospital because that would look, you know, that would look bad. Um, I think we just need to, to, to be aware of that cognitive bias. Yeah, I can completely agree. And I um, I hope no one would take away from what I said that actually it's not safe to change your plan. It's always safe to change your plan. If you're not happy, then then don't tie yourself into your own biases. And if you want to know more about biases, you can see our podcast episode. <laughs> We've already done one shameless plug. We can't, we can't get away with another yeah. one. Yeah, we're not going to do another shameless plug. But we do have an episode on biases that if you want to check that out. Generalbroadcast.org.uk I've certainly learned a lot from you guys after recording that episode and hopefully people listening to this have have learned a few things too. So let's summarise. So we know now that uh, we can split UTI into upper and lower UTI. Upper is when the infection involves the kidneys and the ureters and can be slightly more problematic and and, and has slightly more risk for being uh, unwell. Uh, lower UTI involving the urethra and the bladder, often called cystitis, is is what this has all been about, and, and is probably the, the the most common thing that uh, that we're going to come across when dysuria and increased frequency is is the presenting complaint. We know this is more common in women. We know this is more common in the elderly and people that have catheters. So we'll be hyper aware of that when we're risk stratifying our patients. We need to work these patients up by asking open questions in our history. And if someone has suprapubic pain, pain on urination and increased frequency, then they might have a UTI. But we also need to be open to the other differentials and and asking them about these, uh, asking about things like discharge, asking about things like radiation and other sites of pain and associated symptoms. And really keeping our minds open to that large number of other differentials that it could be. And no the patient smelling of wee doesn't equal a UTI. If your patient's over 65 and has a catheter, put the urine dipstick down. If your patient has a negative urine dip but has symptoms of UTI, then they might still have one. So we need to ensure that we're putting those tests into perspective. 
not all of these patients need antibiotics, but some will. And we need to think about the individual risk stratification for those patients and the risk benefits of whether or not we need to refer them on to their GP or other healthcare professional. And as always, we need to ensure that these patients are adequately safety netted. We need to give really good ongoing care advice. We need to make it absolutely clear to them what will happen if things deteriorate and when they need to call us back or when they need to seek more help if the situation gets any worse. You can find the article to go along with this podcast and the references that we used on generalbroadcast.org.uk, where you can find the other many uh, episodes of podcasts that we've done and that we've uh, name dropped in this in this episode. If you don't already, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and make sure that you're subscribed on the podcatcher of your choice. But that's all for this one. Join us for the next one. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And remember... Don't dip urine in over 65. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Stay safe.